Dispatch Boys. Overlooking Phoenix. From high above in the Star Worldwide Network Studios. Badge Boys. <laughs> Stories, insight, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. And now, here they are, the Badge Boys. Welcome back to another edition of the Badge Boys, a show where two retired cops talk to the community. I'm retired Crime Stopper Sergeant Darren Birch. I'm retired Phoenix Police Officer Jason Schechterly. And we have another incredible show for you. This episode is going to be about mobsters and cops. We have uh, two guests. First is going to be former NYPD Police Officer Vincent Davis, uh, decorated many times over by three mayors, uh, two governors. Incredible story about how he got involved with an informant who ended up turning the tables. It's an incredible tale that ends up going into Hollywood. Then the second segment, we're going to have retired Lieutenant Len Zing. Uh, He was a polygrapher for one of the most notorious cases in Phoenix, Don Bowles murder. This is a car bomb that blew up an investigative reporter. So we go from New York to Phoenix and everything in between. So stay tuned, stay informed, and most of all, you're going to be entertained. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I remember the, I remember moment. the moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. You know, Jason, it seems like each week our shows just get bigger and bigger, my friend. It amazes me the guests that you are able to get on this show on. I, I just am so excited. I yeah, this, this is a good one. Uh, this one starts out, again, we talked about during the tease, mobsters. I'm going to read a, a pellet um, um, statement from uh, United States versus Davis. Uh, again, United States of America versus Vincent Davis. What you don't know is Vincent Davis is a cop and an informant turned the tables on this highly decorated. I mean, we're talking incredibly decorated New York PD, uh, ground zero. This guy is truly a hero. And the way the mobsters turned the table using our justice system against him, the, the appellate ruling even said this appeal ar- arise out of a bizarre. This is a document, a bizarre factual situation that reads like the plot of a grade B melodrama. The government has stretched several laws beyond the breaking point. We conclude that the evidence adduced at the Davis trial was insufficient to convict him of obstruction of justice, conspiracy of obstruction of justice, or use of telephone in aid of racketeering. This is insane. And what am I talking about? Well, several articles come out. One is that the New Yorker, and again, there's a book, and there will be a movie coming out. But uh, suffice to say... um, the officer, what he didn't know and what the FBI didn't know is that this individual um, ended up turning the tables. Um, sort of a law and order meets Sopranos <laughs> meets New York PD. Uh, filmmaker Jack Baxter said that uh, uh, he's been monitoring this monstrosity of justice for the last five years. Um, what we're talking about is a uh, individual by the name of Jerry, and we'll call him the rat. Uh, and then another guy by the name of Richie Sable. Uh, they basically um, were messing with this New York PD cop. In fact, Sable abducted this cop's wife at gunpoint, threatened to cut off her fingers and throw acid in her face. Um, this, this is an insane story. And I cannot thank our first guest, uh, uh, Vincent Davis, for coming on the show. Vincent, welcome to our show, my friend. Thanks very much for having me. Now, before we get into this bizarre tale of mobsters and um, snitches and rats and, and stalkers, uh, as the New York uh, story put out, the cop and the stalker, um, tell us about you as a cop, because your, your father was a sergeant with NYPD, and then you became a, a cop. Uh, tell us about 
what made you want to be a cop, as uh, Jason always talks about, what made you sign and want to be on that application to be at NYPD? Well, ever since I had seen my father in uniform, when I think I was seven years old, I wanted to I wanted to be my dad. There, there was no doubt about it. And that's what I looked forward to doing, and that's all I wanted to do all my life. And I uh, went to the police academy in January of 1985. I studied hard. I graduated in the top 10%. Now, our police academy, their classes are 2,800 guys in a class. Oh, it's not wow. A small, it's not a, yeah, wow, I had 38. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so a town. In, that's a town in Arizona. That's a town. <laughs> yeah, we, we have 38,000 police officers in, in the New York City Police Department. So the attrition rate back then in the 80s was tremendous, and they needed to rush them out quickly. So we were doing the two tours, the, the day tours, and then the four to 12s, uh, and it was just amazing. I mean, the experience of going through the police academy back then on 20th Street was totally amazing. Very old school, very Serpico, you know, r- right out of everything you ever dreamed about being a New York City cop that you saw on TV. That's what it was like. And not, not o- like today with the new training or anything. It's, it was old school. And not only did you excel in academy, but then you had this stellar, stellar career. Tell us a little bit about that. I made my first armed robbery collar on my way to work. The- <laughs> We're talking first day? <laughs> The very, very first day with my brand new uniforms, I had got my assignment where I was going. I lived in the Bronx. I, I got on the subway and I got off at 149th Street and 3rd Avenue by accident because I was supposed to get off at 149th on a concourse to get the train to go to 161st Street. And I got off the wrong. And I says to the, to the token clerk, I said, how do I get to Yankee Stadium, 161st Street? That's where I'm assigned. And she said, you got off the wrong 149th Street. You're supposed to get off at 149 on the conch. And with that, I hear, help, police, help. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You're like, oh, wait, that's me. That's me. Yeah, so I I got $700 worth of uniforms that I I don't want to lose. And she's telling me she can't open up the door. I'm like, open the goddamn door and take my uniform. (laughs) (laughs) Which she does, and then I put my shield around my neck, and I start running, and I, I see the two perps, one armed with a gun, and I identify myself, and the chase is on. Uh, I chased them around the corner. Someone must have put over that, that officer needed assistance. There's a nut with a gun running down 149th Street. And um, they ran and jumped into a dumpster, and I, I turned the corner, and I'm a rookie. I have a six-shooter back then. We didn't have blocks. And... Uh, I'm pointing my gun at the dumpster and two anti-crime cops come up behind me and they don't know who I am. And I'm like, I'm on a job. I'm on a job. And like, please don't move. I'm not. The perps are in the dumpster. Don't shoot me. (laughs) They're like, drop the the gun. And I'm like, I just paid $500 for this freaking gun. I'm not dropping it. And they're like, okay, he's a a cop. Yeah, he's definitely a cop. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely a cop. from there, we got the guys out of the dumpster and, and I made the collar. And here I am, you know, I, they said, oh, nice collar, rookie. And, you know, we're in a car and I, I don't know my ass from my elbow. I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, I found out later on that the lieutenant had had me AWOL where I was supposed to be. Oh, oh my God, that's awesome. And I didn't make any notification. You got a commendation so, and a... Uh, <laughs> and so I got a meritorious duty medal for that. Wow. And, and I got them to squash the rip, which is what we call when you get in trouble. Gotcha. And they squashed a rip on it. You so, also, but it was good. That was the first day. You also told me a really funny story because you've been decorated, and we could go probably 10 shows about your decorations and your stellar career. Uh, but you told me a story that was really funny about the different mayors of New York, as well as two governors have um, you know, awarded you various high accolades to include one from the New York's mayor. America's mayor, Giuliani. Can you tell us about that story? Yeah, it was valid day in New York City is, you know, not every cop, you know, pulls a lot of they say cops don't pull their guns all the time. Cops don't get involved in shootouts all the time. Well, for me, in that particular year, 1991, I was not only involved in one in September of 91, but when we went back to full duty, I got into another one in December 8th of 91, just three minutes before getting off duty when Harry Blenders was getting married. But that's a story for another time. So <laughs> they, they, they're going to give me these awards, and I show up down at Madison Square Garden, and there's thousands and thousands of people for the 28 of us that are being honored. And 
you stand there at the top of the stage and they read your act of heroism. You're involved in a shooting with grave danger to personal injury and so on and so forth. And then you're in full uniform with the white gloves and you march over to the mayor and you salute. You bend over, he puts the medal around your neck and then he shakes your hand. Well, Rudy Giuliani took his hand and put it above my shield where the, the racks of metals are. And he goes, my God, he says, you don't have any room for anymore. And I said, well, you better make room because I'm coming back up. And he looked at me like I had 10 heads. He goes, what do you mean you're coming back up? So I go and I walk down the stairs and then they direct me to go back in front of the entire stage, back up the stairs on the other side. And I stand by the act and they read the second story of the gun battle in December. And I march over and I salute and I take off my hat. And before I bend over for him to put the second medal around my neck, he says, are you coming up here again after this? And I'm like, no, Mr. Mayor. I said, I, I think I've done enough for one afternoon. And he, he shook my hand. He says, congratulations. You're, you're really our hero. And, and that was that. I, I love that story. And what I really like about it is the connection with Giuliani, uh, America's mayor, because we all think about when we think about 9-11, yeah. we absolutely think about Giuliani and how he took and you were there. You were at Ground Zero. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we transfer to the, uh, the mobster story? Yeah. Well, I had been terminated from the job in February 28, 1997, after what you're going to go into, what happens with this court drama and so on and so forth. And after my convictions are overturned and I'm suing to get my job back, uh, 9-11 happened. The planes hit the towers. And... Uh, I immediately got a phone call from a buddy of mine, Patty Brosnan, from the 46th Precinct. He owns the Brosnan Group. He's already retired with John Fleming. And he says, we need all hands on deck. Are you down for this? And I said, let's go. So down at ground zero, I went. And I was down there 12 hours a day, seven days a week from then until about, uh, it was almost two months until October and November. And there's so many people that are suffering from the uh, fallout, not just all those officers that died uh, in the towers and, and going, but those cleaning up. And can you tell us a little bit about your tale? Yeah, I, I got diagnosed with bladder cancer in 2006. I beat it. Um, then it came back again and I beat it. And I just had the third bout and they found um, uh, spots on my lungs that they're waiting to see if that gets any bigger and, and skin cancer. So it's, uh, it's been a little bit of trial and error for me with this, but I'm still here. I'm still talking about it, and I'm still alive. And a lot of my brothers, you know, they're not. With they're all, not, with, so. with everything you've done for New York, uh, these incredible stories, uh, 13 years of just the best of the best. I mean, truly. And then to help out after you've been terminated. And we're going to talk about that because we're going to talk about Diane. And, and this is your first wife. You're what, right out of high school? High school sweethearts kind of thing? Yep. Yeah, I got married at uh, 21 years old and on the police department just shortly after that. And tell me about what happens and her baggage. And we're talking some heavy-duty baggage. Yeah, when, when I first started dating her, uh, she had told me about an ex-boyfriend of hers, Richie Sable, who was uh, in state prison up in Fishkill for armed robbery. And I said, well, what's the story with that? She said, well, I, I promised I would wait for him, but obviously I fell in love with you. I'm not waiting for him. He's going to be doing six years. And she decided to tell him that it was over. And at that point, there, there were threats of, I'm going to kill you when I get out. I'm going to cut off your fingers. I'm going to throw acid on your face to make you so ugly. No man will ever want you again. You think because you're going to marry a cop that this will stop. It won't. And it was just, my dad was a cop. He managed to get in touch with corrections and put, a, put an end to the threats, you know, until the time that he got out. And then just before, I guess, months before we got married after the engagement, he had gotten out of prison and he went to her job at Wine Plains and abducted her with a shotgun and drove her around and taunted her about her, the size of her engagement ring. If you were with me, you'd have a rock. You wouldn't have this puny stone and things like that. And he taunted her and he, then he finally let her out of the car. And what happened to that? Um, Did he end up going to jail for that or what happened there? No, no, absolutely nothing happened. He was basically gone after that. He disappeared. I had found out later on in the year uh, through friends in the neighborhood that he was doing a credit card fraud, that he had some girls working in the Cross County Shopping Center, and he was getting credit card numbers and imprints of cards, and he was doing really well for himself with that until the feds caught on to him, <laughs> and they, they caught him down in Florida, and he actually jumped off of a plane 
and they gave foot pursuit, and he jumped into the intercoastal. Like, where are you going? You're going to swim in the intercoastal with the FBI right behind you? I mean, throw up your hands and give up. What are you, you're a schmuck. <laughs> but that, that's, that's the type of guy that this madman was. So he goes down At for that. At that point, yeah, he goes down, and he gets sentenced to 12 years for that. I went to the White Plains Federal Courthouse to actually see this guy for the first time and watch him be sentenced. And that was when I, I had met John Truslow, the FBI agent, and he saw me in the back of the court and he asked me who I was. And I told him and he says, oh, he goes, you got a real hard ass here. And I says, he started telling me stories about how in open court, when John had arrested him, he turned around and said, when I get out of jail, I'm going to kill you, 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 and you. And he pointed at the agents and the judge, threw a cigar in his mouth and then walked off. So this is the type of guy that, that they were dealing with. Yeah, this is a bad character. When's the next time you see him again? Um, next time I see him after that, I'm about, about six years into the 12 year sentence. This was back when they didn't have to do 85% of the time. So he got out in 50% and I'm driving on central Avenue in Yonkers where, where I live going home from a day tour. And, uh, I look out my peripheral vision and I see him in a BMW sitting next to another known gangster and he points his finger at me shaped like a gun and he pulls the, 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 the thumb trigger, you know, right at me, like, and throws a cigar in his mouth, and his friend takes off in the car, and I go chasing him, but I'm driving at that time, I think it was a 74 Nova, <laughs> and they're driving a brand new BMW, so that chase didn't go so well, <laughs> <laughs> as you could figure. So I, when I got, when I got to home, because there were no cell phones or anything back then, and I called my job and I notified them. They notified the Yonkers police. They gave me Yonkers radio. I had extra security on my house. I had extra police from the NYPD and transit police. And three days later, my captain calls me in the office and says, listen, I need you gun and shield. And I'm like, for what? He said, because we've been notified by the Justice Department and by the FBI that Richie Sable is safe and sound in prison in Georgia. And they think that you've lost your mind and uh, you got to go see the department shrink. And I'm like, no, I haven't lost my mind, Skipper. You know me a long time. Well, this is what I'm told to do. And I'm a captain and I got to file orders. So that that was it. And I, I was in shock. I was in shock that they would. I knew somebody was lying at that point. But who am I? I'm just a, a white shield detective. I'm not, you know, promoted. I'm nobody. So I just did what I had to do. Now, what happened is Christmas time, which wasn't long away, my brother-in-law, Mike Blanteri, is sitting around a Christmas table with me, and he says, hey, that Richie Sable, you told me that was doing 20 to life. You know he's out of prison. I says, don't even tell me you've seen him, Phil. <laughs> oh, God. And he says, as a matter of fact, he's hanging out with my best friend, Jerry Vittorio. You remember Jerry from my wedding? And I'm like, yeah. So from there, I hit the bottle of scotch pretty good, and I told Mike, I said, do me a favor, tell Jerry to get his ass over here, I want to talk to him. And Jerry comes over, and I said, listen, Jerry, I don't really care about you or your business, but I care about this guy. I don't want him near my brother-in-law, my sister, or their newborn baby. But this guy, Sable, is supposed to be doing 20 to life. He sold two kilos of coke to an undercover DEA agent. It's been in all the papers. Tell your friend to stay away from him because he's either ratting on somebody right now or he got an appeal and won or he did something, but he's not supposed to be out on the streets. And thus, the games begin. Because you had made that statement to him, and he was indeed a rat. He was an informant, but for a bizarre uh, department. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, what had happened was when I found out, when I saw him on Central Avenue at that time, I made all the connections. I called John Truslow from the FBI, and he says, I'll look into it. He also had my, he also, uh, Truslow also called and spoke to my sergeant. I spoke to the DEA agent who made the arrest. I checked with everybody, and nobody knew anything. And lo and behold, we found out later on that Sable was calling everybody and anybody to get out of that 20-year sentence. He would rat and do anything. And nobody wanted him because he threatened to kill FBI agents. Agent Truslow was supposed to be notified if this guy was ever let out of prison because he threatened to kill Truslow. So he was never notified that he was out. But Customs, United States Customs, <laughs> decided to use him and not even check about his background. They're using him in New York and New Jersey, where we live, where it was inevitable that you know people are going to find out that he's out. Yeah, small world there. Yeah, very, very small. When you're talking with gangsters and things like that, it, you know, and Sable had to know that he was taking these people for a ride because he had to know he knew about the animosity with me. And if it, that I had found out about it, I was going to ensure he was going back to jail where, to prison where he belonged. I would not stop until he went back to prison. So, And to flaunt it by pointing his finger at you 
do you think he was kind of almost setting you up? Well, let's put it this way. If I had pulled him over, there would have been an exchange of gunfire because he wouldn't have been pulling his finger out because mm-hmm. him and the other guy in the car were known gangsters and they're known to be armed. And I would never, in spite of anything, broken the law and shot him. I would not have done that. Yeah. I would have identified myself. And if he didn't pull a piece, he would have been collared. I, you know, that's not my thing. I'm not out for vengeance. I'm not out to break the law. And that's why when all this happened, I was flabbergasted by it. Because everyone said, nah, if that was me, I would have killed him. Threatened my wife, do this. I'm a cop. But that's not the way it works. You can't take the law into your own hand. And when you talk <sighs> about vengeance and with vigor, uh, they came after you, did they not? Oh, my God, yes. They tried to lock up my whole family. And so my t- sister, who was at the table at Christmas, my brother-in-law who told me that, that Sable was out, anyone that had a conversation about it, they will link into a conspiracy. And the feds do this. You don't even have to know what the other person is doing to be linked into a conspiracy. That's how crazy their laws are. So, so, they, so they came after me. And they came after you because you had told someone that this guy shouldn't be out, and you're trying to protect this guy, and then that's kind of construed, but... In the, in the final outcome, you end up being vindicated. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, what happened was they, they came to me and after I was arrested. I was fired from the police department. And the way they got me fired from the police department, which they did intentionally, so that I would not have PBA attorneys helping me to fight them. So what they did was they sent an FBI agent to my department trial to testify against me, which I didn't know they were going to do. And his testimony, my, I was fine. I was keeping my job, no matter what they said, up until the part that the FBI agent testified that I had given my gun to Jerry Vittorio when I was giving him a ride home in the snow, and he fired my weapon out, out the car window seven times. When I heard that testimony, that was the end of my job. And even though he recanted and said, eh, I lied. Yeah, well, he, he recants a year, well, it's actually a couple of years later, because what happens is Jerry gets sentenced to 13 years for being involved with Sable, along with the rest of the Lucchese crime family. 13 of them go down, except for one guy that's found dead in a trunk floating in a Long Island Sound. He, he's the only one that doesn't go to trial and go to prison. But what happened was they were not happy. The judge was pissed because these guys all sort of been getting life sentences, not these light sentences that they got because of my interference. So Sable had gotten enough information about these guys to put them away for a good long time. And with them was the copper regime's son, Jerry, who after three years decided, I don't like prison so much, so I'm going to give Vinnie Davis the cop to them and make up a story so I can get out of prison. And that's what he did. So... Your your question about him coming clean didn't happen until my lawyer got to him on cross-examination and said, so let me ask you a question. You told the FBI that Vinnie Davis, police officer Davis, gave you his weapon, a Glock, and he was driving you home in the snow, and he just handed you over this Glock, and then you fired it out the window of his car like seven times. Did that really happen? Well, I was posturing, man. Well, why don't you explain to the jury what posturing means? Doesn't that mean you're lying? And you all just said, yeah, but that's posturing. That's the way we are. Well, your posturing got this highly decorated cop fired. So what? He's a cop. So that's part of how my trial went. But the first trial, even with that, I was found guilty of everything, of obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice, tampering with a federal witness who, by the way, I never met except that one time at the traffic light. And nine, nine counts of uh, interstate use of a telephone to aid racketeering, even though I was never recorded on a telephone, never once. So the other thing, too, that we found interesting was we wanted all of these alleged crimes that I supposedly committed happened in the state of New York. But what they did was they dragged me to Newark, New Jersey, because they knew a white cop with a million medals was going to go to jail in Newark, New Jersey. And that's exactly what happened. You know, as I listen to this story, it just brings out like the departed with Jack Nicholson. You know, the idea of these informants turning the tables. Um, But ultimately, justice is served, I guess, in the sense that you're vindicated. Um, You are now happily married. Uh, You have a book. There's talk of a Hollywood movie. Can you talk about the success with all that horror, because if you will kind of paint the stage, if you will, it got as bad as you went to Rikers. No, I, I went to MCC. I went to, um, which was worse. 
than Rikers. In my book, the Union County Jail in New Jersey, where I was held in solitary confinement for five and a half months, where you're, you know, you're locked in a cage for 23 hours a day. Uh, it was, it was unbelievable. But once I got used to the fact that I wasn't going anywhere, which shocked me, because you have to understand in the federal system, if you're convicted of a nonviolent crime, uh, you walk out the day you're convicted and they tell you that you're, they're going to do a pre-sentencing and you'll be back and then you're going to surrender. You actually drive yourself to the federal prison and you surrender, but not me. They put me in shackles when the verdict came in and they dragged me away not to see my family for 16 months. So then they denied my bail pending appeal, which was something that was unheard of. So here I am. I'm waiting for my appeal to come through 16 months. But in that time, I'm writing this book. I'm like, I have to tell this story. Cops need to know that, that the job is not going to protect you, that, the, that this is not for real. Don't, don't, don't go out there and try to kill yourself to do a great job because it's, it's going to come and, and bite you sometime. So I wrote this chapter by chapter with a two-inch pencil because that's the biggest pencil I'll give you so you don't stab yourself to death. And I mailed it out chapter by chapter to my dad, who, who then typed it up and then copyrighted it for me. And it's a good thing that I did, because when I got out and I hit the papers and I was on Dateline and Inside Edition and everything else, they tried to steal the story from me and sell it to Hollywood. And uh, they weren't able to do that because I guess because I was smart enough to copyright it. Good but what happened, what also happened, which is strange, when the appeal got turned they they told me that we're not there's no way we're trying this case again you know there's only two charges left that weren't overturned and, and we can never prove them because you were drunk and it's in the record but the judge judge alfred j Lecter said you're going to try this case again so after i'm released and I, I get engaged and i think my life is going to be normal they try me again on the two counts of of uh witness tampering to the witness that i never tampered with by the way. <laughs> or seen and uh, yeah or seen so we come back with an 11 to 1 not guilty. There's a young kid that walks by and says, you're a cop. I don't give a shit. You're guilty. So there's the hung jury. Prior to the hung jury coming out, the AUSA says to my attorneys, listen, no matter what happens with this, we're not trying this case again. This is costing millions and millions of dollars, and this is bullshit. So I'm like, all right, well, if we got a hung jury, this will be good because I won't have to go to trial again. When the hung jury was announced, when Judge Lecter announced the hung jury, he turned around and told the AUSA, if you don't try him again, I want the United States attorney himself to stand in front of me and tell me why. I have a short calendar. I'm going to put it on a calendar. We're going to retry him next month. And boom, now off to the races for another trial. Third trial, not guilty on both counts. The jury came back and... I was a free man. But finally, it was finally justice. After it was all that. it was amazing. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Wow. Yeah. In the meantime, you'll love this part. Jerry Vittoria, who he let out of his ten year sentence, he goes and commits a violent felony in Yonkers, and it's in all the newspapers that upon Jerry Vittorio being done with the Yonkers with the Supreme Court or whoever, he has to go directly to deal with Alfred J. Lechner on the federal bench in Newark. So here, this gangster got a second chance at life and blew it because he had to go back out there. And Richie Sable, who got out of his 20-year sentence for cooperating, was rearrested down in Florida for extortion and all sorts of racketeering and everything else. And Nothing you, like letting two, right? two, two bad guys out. And me, I move on, I get married, I open a business, I start my life over, and I'm doing well. And you're how how many years now married? September will be twenty years. Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. That is an amazing story. Where do we find that book? The book is called The Cop and the Stalker. You can find it on Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, Google Play, eBooks. It's out there. And plus, you can get it in the bookstore. But the easiest way is to get it, you know, online with Amazon. As of last week. It was sold out on Amazon, and it was sold out in London. So it must be doing well. I won't know until they send me the first quarterly report on how it's doing. But the uh, what happened two weeks ago was I just happened to looking on Amazon, and it said there's only one copy left. So I wrote that on LinkedIn, and one of my cops that I worked with, Joey Bavuso, wrote back, there's no copies left. I just got the last one. So I know it was being replenished. But they're out, it's out there. Yeah. Then yeah, and I haven't even gotten on Good Morning America yet. I'm supposed to go on Good Morning America, 
they they have me scheduled to go on the View. Like I said, I don't know how that's going to go. Yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with that. I feel for you. Yeah, and then Howard Stern supposedly is supposed to be calling too. That's cool. So it starts with the badge boys. Go on Howard Stern. Yeah, the badge boys came first. (laughs) It's going to be funny because I I can only imagine what Howard's going to go with in this. Because if you read the book, you know, between the... uh, the things, you know, the bedroom activities with the wife that's in there, because I was in prison, so I did have to write some interesting things. And then the uh, the, the sexual exploits of my wife with Sable and everything else. So Howard Stern would have a field day. with. I could just imagine the things that's going to come out of his mouth. It would almost scare me. Vinny, uh, I mean, I love stories like this growing up. Uh, I love what you said at the beginning. You just wanted to be your dad, and that's such a heartfelt thing. And, and the career, the st- I am truly speechless this is a movie would never even do this justice what you what you have experienced what you've been through what you did for the city and state of new york and um i'm just so incredibly proud to to know you and to have you on our show i I thank you from the bottom of our heart and i wish you the best in your future travels the sacrifice from 9-11 i know uh, i see it every day the the stories of people getting sick I know you've lost a lot of your friends and you're battling your own fight right now. And I just, uh, all my prayers and love to you, brother. I really appreciate it. Thank you too, my brother. Hey, if you come out here, uh, first round's on us. I'll definitely make a trip out there because uh, Arizona, I have a funny story to tell you about Arizona when I was out in 1986. I don't know if you want to talk about it on the air. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Like, uh, <laughs> Especially anything, with that preface. I got to hear it. Well, uh, back then, you know, you could take your gun from one state to the other. It wasn't a problem. And I took my Snowbills 38 with me. I went everywhere with my gun. So I took it. And my sister-in-law was graduating from Arizona State University. So I'm dressed up in a suit. My wife, the whole family, we all flew out there. And it's like a closing time out there, whatever time it was. It wasn't four like New York. But um, I, I, we got in a car and I said to my, my ex-wife at the time, I says, we're going back to the hotel. And she started going on to a rant. My sister's having another party. I said, we're bombed. We're going back. We, we can't. We're not going to be driving anymore. And she's grabbing a wheel. So I pull over and we get into a big argument on the side of the road. And these guys pull up with a pickup truck and they, they have guns. <laughs> you know, and I'm looking at him. I'm like, can you help me? Is he bothering you, ma'am? And I'm like, this is my wife. Stay out of this, man. And they're like, no, no, we'll mess you up. And I'm like, you'll mess me up. So I'm half in the bags. I see their guns. I pull my gun and they jump in the car and they drive away. So I said, you see what happened now, Diane? You see the problems that's going on here, this bullshit? I said, I'm going to get in trouble for this, I know it. And I I just remembered the mile marker, and I dug a little hole, and I put my 38 by the cactus. I got back in the car. (laughs) And and now now I'm driving down the road, half in the bag, and here comes, I'm getting lit up. And I'm like, see, I told you. So it's the police. And the gun's drawn, the whole felony car stopped, and I had my hands up. On the hood, I'm like, listen, I'm a police officer in New York, and bang, 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 bouncing me off the hood of the car and all the rest of this happy crap. And I'm like, okay, now I'm laying in, I'm bleeding, and I'm like, okay, hopefully I'm just getting a beating, and, you know, this is as far as it goes. Because we're cops are cops. Back then, not like today, you know, we're cops. It's understandable. One of those guys in the truck, it must have been a family member I pulled the gun on. So it's understandable. So... So with that, they help my wife to get in his car, and they're going to take her to the hotel. And then another guy goes and drives the rental car that I have, and I get in the back seat of the car with cuffs on now. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm getting called for this. And they're driving and they're driving and they're driving, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, it's pitch dark. I said, Where are you guys taking me? Oh, you'll see. And I'm like, Oh Jesus Christ, they're going to kill me. They're going to bury me out in the desert. I- I'm done. So yeah, really, I'm drinking a lot then. So they pull over. Give me one more swift kick in my ass, and they leave me there in the middle of the desert. <laughs> now, obviously, you guys live out there. You know how cold it is out there. <laughs> I got a suit on. I'm all messed up. I got blood pouring all over me. Finally, I see a truck. couple cars, nobody stops, but a truck comes, and I'm, like, waving them down. And it must have looked like a scene from, like, a, a, a mafia movie. And the guy finally stops, and I'm all bloody. I says, the cops did this. Can you get me to town? And he drove me into town. And I was just like, uh... Don't mess with the, the cops out in Arizona. That's the bottom line. No, that's, that that's, is the that's bottom my line. my story of the day. 
It's funny as hell. My only dream would be that the retired officers who were there with you that night are listening tonight going, oh, yeah, I remember that. And we're talking 80s? I remember that guy. 86? Yeah, 1986. That's when I became a cop. That's when I became a cop. That's and a, it was rough. I, I won't lie. Yeah, it was, it was a little different. A little different. It was a lot uh, different. All those years ago. So thanks for sharing. Sharing that. That's pretty yeah, good. I, I thought you I thought you get a kick out of it. I like that well, was, I like the, hearing the, an NYPD graduation nineteen eighty six. I like hearing an NYPD guy with a decorated career saying don't mess with Arizona cops. That's a, right, that's a, right, that's a right. good one. We'll <laughs> say, we, we we will take that compliment. Hey thank brother, you. hey, thank yeah, you so it, much. It, you deserve it. Yep. Thanks, Vinny. Thank you very much for having me. All right, buddy. Be well, okay. God bless. All right. God bless you guys and be safe. And we'll be right back with Lieutenant Len Zing and another mobster story. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. I'll never forget never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. My first call ever as a member of the National Guard. When we got to the armory, they briefed us on the wildfires. They were getting dangerously close to homes. Helicopters were going out to drop water on the fires. Guys in the unit were preparing for firefighting with local fire crews. At that moment, I got my first taste of just how important the Guard is to my community. See how the Guard can be an important part of your life at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Batch Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Batch Boys. Welcome back to Badge Wars, everybody. Darren, that was an outstanding <laughs> episode, better than any movie. And I, I have seen every New York PD Mafia movie. Uh, That's a New York cop. That, that guy was uh, fantastic. Uh, Vinny. Um, he was fired up. Vinny he Davis. Was, and you know what? He's, uh, he's gone through a lot in life, and he's battling a lot right now. So seriously, God bless him. But that was a cool story to listen to. And you know what? Uh, I'm moved by what he said at the beginning um, as we introduce our next guest because he said, as soon as I saw my dad in uniform when I was seven years old, I wanted to be my dad. And as I have said so many times on this show, I don't know who our guests are 98% of the time until I get here and walk in today. And our next guest is retired Phoenix Police Lieutenant Lin Zing. And Lieutenant Zing is a prolific author, well-known calligrapher, uh, great career, great service to the city of Phoenix. But I'd be remiss uh, not to mention that there is another Lieutenant Zing who meant a lot to this city and department who I knew. And I actually spent some time with Lynn's son, Mark, when he got sick with cancer himself and unfortunately passed away a few years ago. So to sit next to LT right now, which... Forgive me, but I will not be able to call you Len this entire episode. You're just, you're LT. Okay. And, uh, uh, but it, it was moving to go from Vinny, uh, what he said, and then to be sitting next to LT. But we're here to talk about something, uh, your career, and then a case that has moved me since I was a very, very young boy <laughs> growing up. Maybe the most famous, or easily oh, the I, most it, famous it case is. in it Phoenix. Is. It e- is. Easily. Yeah. Uh, so, Without further ado, welcome Lieutenant Leonard Zing. Well, thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. And before we go into your illustrious career, you are this prolific writer. Can you tell us how that happened? Because you went, you kind of reinvented yourself. Yeah, I did. I retired in uh, 1990 after a few days short of 28 years. And then I, after a few years, I went to work for the Downtown Phoenix Partnership, uh, revitalizing downtown and and I worked there about three and a half years and traveled around a little bit. And then I started to write my memoirs for the kids. And my daughter, who's a school teacher in California, started reading them. She said, no, this belongs in a book. So, oh, okay. So I started writing books and I decided I, I started a four-book series. I have three published, um, Destiny of a Cop, uh, Liars All, and Light of Truth. And I have one more to go, and that's it. And then I wrote a poem book and two children's books. So you're, you're definitely a writer. I mean, you really are. I've read your books. They're absolutely amazing. They're riveting. They're compelling. Uh, I like the series as it relates to pol- at you as a polygrapher. Can you k- tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, uh, 
I was working for this major in the, in the office, and he came down one day and he says, you're going to polygraph school. I said, I don't want to go to polygraph school. <laughs> he, says, he says, so you want me to go back there and tell the chief that you won't go after we went through all the files on, of every sergeant on the department and select you? And I said, well, I don't really want to go, but he's a major and I'm a sergeant. So I said, I'll go. So I went to polygraph school and um, right from day one after I got out of school, I was inundated with polygraphs. I've conducted more than 10,000 polygraphs. Oh, my God. 10,000? At, at least, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you were, the, you were the department's polygrapher back right. then. And, yeah. And what year are we talking about, Lynn? Uh 73 when I went to polygraph school. Oh. Went to polygraph school in Chicago. And um, one of the um, most famous, I guess, tests I've ever conducted involved the Don Bowles case. Uh, I tested probably... Oh, six to eight people in regards to that case. And, and for those who may not remember, can you kind of, and me and Jason definitely remember oh, because we were kids. I, I was even a kid then. It's unbelievable. Tell us about the Don Bowles case. Yeah, uh, June 2nd, 1976. Uh, Bowles was a reporter for the Arizona Republic, <clears throat> and he got a tip to go to this hotel, Clarendon Hotel off Central, and he'd have some information there. A guy would be waiting for him. So he went to the hotel, and the guy wasn't there. So he gets back in his car, and it blows up. Um, so they really didn't have much to go on, so they were bringing in person after person to polygraph, see if they knew anything. And they brought in Max Dunlap. And the reason they brought in him is because Don Bowles was doing a, a series of um, kind of mobster-related stories. Right. He was uh, investigating the um, dog track, actually, the racing commission. And um, so, anyway, um, Max was an, the most interesting test I've ever conducted because he did everything that the interrogation book says a guilty person will do. Uh, we tried, uh, I tried different things. When I was interrogating someone, I would try different things to see what worked. And I moved closer to him, and as I moved closer, he backed up. Well... That's a sign of a guilty party right there, you know. But um, anyway, he says, he finally admitted that, uh, he says, well, I was standing on my driveway one morning, Sunday morning. This car pulled up, threw a sack of money out to the window and says, take this to the bank, get it changed into smaller bills, go to Neil Roberts' office, which was an attorney, put it on his desk, don't say anyone, anything to anyone, and leave it. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> I said, well, who was this guy? Well, I don't know. I said, so a stranger coming through this bag of money out? Take, yeah. So that was every day. That was the story he was telling. But anyway, uh, he says, well, let me ask you something. He said, would you say anything bad about your father if you knew it might get him in trouble? And I said, depends on what he did. I said, if it's murder, <laughs> definitely. You know. So anyway, what it was is that um, there was a guy that wanted to be head of the liquor department and Max owed this guy because he said the guy gave him a million dollars start a business he lost that money he gave him another million and he says so I'm not going to say anything bad about him so I said well that's understandable so that's about all he would admit to me but he finally got convicted and him and uh, two other guys the guy that actually planned the bomb uh, who was Adamson John Adamson and then there was another guy, James Robeson, and they got convicted, and then Max Dunlap and Robeson was overturned, conviction was, and they were, tried him again, and Dunlap finally went to prison. But uh, all three of them have since died, so I guess there's... Uh, they never made it to the money trail, did they? They never made it up to the money trail? No, they never did, never did. Um, but it was interesting. I went to the state prison to test a guy who had been in prison for 16 years, and he... Uh, said he had the information that Barry Goldwater was involved in the bombing. So the warden at that time was the same warden that welded all the cell doors shut. He got mad at the prisoners welded the cell doors shut. I remember that. That's a true story. <laughs> <laughs> only, only in yeah. Phoenix. <laughs> and uh, somebody ratted him off, and the judge made him unweld him. But anyway, you can imagine this. Um, there's no place at the prison to really set up my polygraph and test anybody. No, no really secure place except the warden's office. 
So he was really upset that he was going to have vacate his office while the polygraph was going on. Well, it took me about three hours before this guy would admit that it was all a farce, that he just wanted to get out of there. And he, he picked the best name he could think of, <laughs> a beloved Barry Goldwater. Yeah. What a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. What a so, jerk. Well, he said that was the only thing that might interest people, you know, so, to come and talk to him. So anyway... Um, we got through, and the warden said, well, how'd he do? And I said, well, he admitted that it was all a story. A hoax. He says, that son of a bitch, I'll throw him so far back in the hole, they'll have to shoot beans to him with a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they drug him out of there. The guy was crying and carrying on. I said, I don't blame you. I said, I'd want to get out of here, too. I said, I don't blame you for making up a story. I'd probably do the same thing. So anyway, that was an interesting case. Um, and how many of these stories find their way in the book? Now, I kind of know the answer to this because the books are, are fictional, but there's non-fictional elements. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the, the story actually parallels my life, you know, as a polygraph examiner. And there were so many interesting cases that I had that I incorporated them in the book without... There were still a lot of people alive, so I had to change some things and elaborate a little on something and embellish something so it wouldn't look like an, uh, an actual uh, story about the individuals that are still alive. Yeah, so the characters aren't really who they are, but the stories are much, there's a lot of facts in there. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. But um, there's, I had two applicants for police officer that invented murders to me. Oh, my gosh. They, oh, hold on. Yes. We they yes. applied to work for the Phoenix Police Department. Right. You had to, because I mean, I've taken, uh, in all my applications over the years, I took maybe six or seven polygraphs. So I know exactly what they're like. And they're not, well, have you had sex they're not, with they're not farm hard animals. if you're telling, they're not, <laughs> yeah. they're not, they're not, they're not, Seriously? they're not difficult if no. you're telling the as truth. As long as you haven't had sex with farm yeah. animals. Yeah. <laughs> they're not wow. difficult, Whoa. but they, they are intimidating. But I'm trying to picture carrying Carrying something like murder all the way through to yeah, in that little room. Them. So how did they, I, I mean, how do you, I don't remember being asked, have you ever killed somebody? Well, I'll tell you, when you're in that little room, sometimes you forget that there's other people out there and there's anything besides you and that other person in the room. Yeah, we're and, monitoring. And you get that mindset, you know, and that's what the polygraph examiner does. He gets them in that mindset so that they'll tell you whatever. They're a buddy. You know, yeah. the truth, you know. So anyway, uh, one killed one person, one killed two. Wow. And, um, were, and they were, they arre were they arrested <laughs> on site? I took them up to the detective bureau, so I don't know what happened to them. I had so many cases. I was doing from 8 to 10 polygraphs every day. And I'd start at 7 in the morning, finish like 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Well, and I still had the reports to write. So I'd get home 11 o'clock at night. Yeah. You know, and sometimes I'd get home and more get home and get a call. Well, come down here. We got somebody we need polygraphed right away. So people don't realize how many cases we take to the polygrapher. When I was working child crimes, oh my gosh, it was oh, yeah. probably eighty percent of the cases yeah. right off the get go. We would bring them into the polygrapher because we're talking about mom and dad. You know, did one of you do this? And and if they want to keep their child through yeah. um, protective services, they need to cooperate and. Bam, they go to the go in the box, as they call it. Yeah, they, uh, they brought a, a doctor in, a pediatrician one day from another town, police department did. And um, anyway, during the, well, the first thing he did was hand me this real thick folder with all of his commendations and stuff in. So I knew he right away, from, you know, something's wrong with the guy. <laughs> He's and trying he, to impress yeah, you. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and if they come in carrying a Bible, you know they're guilty right to start with them. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, yeah. I had one minister come in and they held his book in front of him and dousing like a water, you know, like he's dousing for water, you know, moving it side to side. Well, you know <laughs> why, though? He was afraid if he put his hand on that Bible, it would get well, torched. It. <laughs> Ignited. But anyway, uh, during the interrogation, why, uh, he started to choke and cough, and I looked, and his tongue started to swell up and stuck out of his mouth, and I had to run get some water and pour on his tongue and talk real quiet to him and Calm him unhook down. him. And as soon as I unhooked him, he sat there for a while, and pretty soon he got up. Well, I'd thrown that stuff on the floor that he gave to me in the corner of the room, and he got up, went over there, and picked up his stuff and left, never said another word. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> but he admitted some stuff to me, like he's sleeping in his sleeping bag with boys, and, you know, what, he ha what happens in his sleep, why, <laughs> he doesn't know. 
But I got to tell you this one funny story. Thank you, because I know you got some weird sex ones. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, you're talking about animals. Now. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> oh, boy, here we go. Oh, God. Here we go. This, this guy was telling me, I said, well, have you ever uh, been involved in ab- abnormal sex acts? And he said, no, I don't think so. Well, maybe uh, one, maybe I did. Uh, some people might think it was abnormal. I said, well, what was it? He said, well, I was deer hunting up on the Kaibab, and he says, I was chasing this deer all day. I'd think I'd get a shot at him, and then he'd move in the bushes, and he said, I'd, I chased him about late in the afternoon, finally got a shot, but the deer ran off, and I chased him, and finally found him laying in clearing, uh, thrashing around. So he says, uh, I just got so excited, I ripped my clothes, I found out it was a doe rather than a buck, and he says, I was mad and excited at the same time, and he says, I didn't know what else to do. I just ripped my clothes off and had sex with the deer while it was dying. Stockholm Syndrome. And I says, yeah. <laughs> oh. I says, and why did you do that? Well, uh, women, he says, uh, they'll tease and tease and tease and then kick you in the nuts when you least expect it. So he says, I... I uh, just took my frustrations out on the deer. Those damn does. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I just ripped my clothes off you know, you and had sex with the deer while I mean, it was dying. Yeah. That is the I mean, disgusting thing yeah. I've ever heard. That's this, a sick puppy. No, that, wait. This yeah. one oh, more. Oh, thank oh, you. God. Thank you. Yes. Yes. I mean, a guy was in Texas and he found this train load of turkeys. Oh, <laughs> yeah, honest to God. He had sex with this turkey, and then he said he broke... Gobble, 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 gobble. Just one of them. <laughs> Just one? Broke, broke the turkey's neck. The hottest one. About the time he was having a climax. Says, oh Why'd you do that? And he says, get that dying quiver. Oh, said, oh, oh well, that makes sense. I you know? <laughs> just went from sick to sicker. I would have turned in my polygrapher's license right there. <laughs> oh. See you later. I'm done. Well, I'll tell you, there, there's times I would hear so much bad stuff. There's your stupid suspect stories. Yeah, right? yeah that takes right? care we'll just repeat of it. We, we that. Won't have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that there were times I would have to stop right in the middle of interrogation, go in the restroom and vomit, wash my mouth out and my face, and come back and finish the interrogation. Because you've got to act like this isn't disturbing you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the bank, bank president that came in was going to be a reserve officer. And, uh, I, I think the uh, was is the optimum word there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but anyway... Uh, he uh, finally admitted to him that he'd been having sex with his seven-year-old daughter since she turned six. Oh, oh that's horrible. And normally, I, you know, I said, oh, yeah, well, that's all right. Uh, tell me more, you know. But it, I just blurred out, says, doesn't it bother you to have sex with your own daughter? And he said, well, the only thing that bothers me is she won't let me alone. You see, she wants it all times, but they left for, to visit her, my wife's sister. And he said, boy, it gives me a rest. Well, when I did the test, I got a reaction to that, and a, a certain type of reaction uh, indicated that there was more involved than what he was just telling me. So he finally admitted to molesting several other girls, neighbor girls, and well, hopefully he rotted and, in, and was he arrested? in jail. And he, uh, I just turned the information over to detectives. I don't right, know what they really right. did. With him. Guaranteed, but he was arrested and but, rotted away. In no, jail. I'll tell you. Back then, child molesting was not treated like it is today. Yeah, it's very harsh laws today. I doubt seriously whether they ever arrest him because he was applying for a job. And when they apply for a job, you know... Uh, and what year are we talking about, like, approximately? In the 74, 5, okay. somewhere in there. In the mid-70s. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, it was different. It really it was. was. Uh, in the 80s, things changed a lot in terms of Arizona becoming one of the most... Um, uh, strict laws as it relates to yeah. sex crimes. But me, when I came on the apartment in 86, it was not against the law <clears throat> to rape your wife. Yeah. yeah. Right. Horrifically. Horrifically. Yeah. You, there was no such of an animal. It was a defense in sexual assault if the victim was your spouse. But, yeah, I, there's some that though I would have to laugh because this one guy came in, a real thin kid applying for a police officer, and he crinkled when he walked. I knew right away what was probably going on. So during the test, I said, do you have anything on any part of your body in an attempt to try to beat this test? And he just uh, about a 10-second apnea there where he stopped breathing. Finally, 
I said, you better start breathing again. <laughs> Honest to God, sometimes I would just stop breathing. You have to remind them, stop, you know, start breathing. I don't want you to pass out. Stop, stop breathing. Yeah. So, yeah. so anyway, he had his body wrapped in aluminum foil. Because what? yeah, what does that what does that do? <laughs> nothing. Makes you wrinkle. What did he think? What did he think when you walk? You crinkle when you walk. What did he think it would do? Hide, he hide the the electrodes. Deflect the signal. Yeah. He thought it was some kind of a, a wavelength that coming out from the polygraph, you know. And was and, it from Roswell? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it could be. Anyway, uh, but yeah, they do that, and they'd have tacks in their shoes, you know, to push down on their. And then they'd, sometimes they'd stop breathing when they lie. Well, all that stuff just makes it more pronounced. They're yeah. lying more pronounced. Yeah, causing, you know. How about the drugs? How, uh, many, how many times did you run across someone that was so bombed on drugs uh, trying to change their... Uh, well, one kid uh, got a real reaction for, have you smoked any marijuana the past six months? So I asked him about it. And he said, well, he says, I was so bummed out about this test that I smoked marijuana last night to mellow me out. I, <laughs> so I took the test today. <laughs> answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> last night. Test is over. Yeah. So, yeah, We're so, done. Uh, but, I, have uh, a, I have a question. Yes, please. Go ahead. You know, we talk about this a lot on the show with officers and first responders in particular that deal with PTS. And you're saying that you've had to leave the room several times to go throw up because right. of things. So. Does PTS, I'm sure it affects you. you. You had to have dealt with that on a daily basis of dealing with these kind of subjects. Only, only um, while I was working. After I worked, you know, it, it was really strange because it was like I was two different people. When I entered that polygraph room, it was like I pushed a button on myself and I became a different person. Outside of that room... It was difficult for me to engage in small talk and all that stuff. Inside that room, I could talk nonstop 24 hours and never run out of something to say. So it was really a metamorphosis. Did you find that writing the books helped with that aspect, or did you find it brought things to surface that you had maybe buried? Uh, no, I, I think it helped. I do too. Yeah, yeah. I Arctic. think it helped. Cause it I, yeah, it was cathartic. Uh, but, um, yeah, there was... <laughs> Another incident, there was a captain that was accused of, and, and realized I'm a sergeant, I'm testing these high-ranking officers, you know. Anyway, this captain was accused of uh, stealing a socket, one of these little sockets that goes with a socket wrench. And his claim was that he had his hands full of other stuff, which he did, and he bought, and forgot the socket was in his pocket. Well, they arrested him. Well, anyway, the chief called me and says, hey, uh, I'm going to send this captain down and want you to test him. I said, okay. So the captain came in, stood in the door and says, how you doing? He said, well, right now I'd like to punch you right in the damn nose. Well, I felt a lot better after that. In fact, I leaned back and I started laughing. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. <laughs> and finally he started laughing And then uh, because you can't insult a guilty person. And if they're mad about doing this, it's a pretty good indication that he was going to tell the truth. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that was pretty good. But uh, I have to ask you about your books yeah. um, before there's a lot of people listening. It's like, mm. you know, t again, there's a series of, that talks about that polygrapher, you right. know, from mm. from beginning to th through these deep investigations. Those are the ones. But tell us a little bit about the barnyard stuff. That's hilarious. It's cute. It's for kids. Yeah, I was talking to my daughter one day and on the phone and all of a sudden this rhyme came to me. <laughs> I said I was back, like Dr. The, Seuss. back of the barn down on my knees when I thought I heard, heard a chicken sneeze. She says, hey, that'd make a good children's book. And I said, yeah. She said, yeah. So I put that down and all the other stuff came to me. <clears throat> but a lot of times I'd wake up in the morning and all this stuff would come to me so fast I couldn't write it down fast enough. So uh, I got the children's books and then I sent some to my daughter in California and she used them as lesson plans for her class. So she said it really worked out really well. And tell us uh, the two titles that you have there. Uh, Barnyard Friends and uh, a Robin Invited Me to Dinner. As in a bird. Yeah, and, not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Different rockin' Robin. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, the Destiny of a Cop book, first one, is pretty much parallels my life on the street. And I've had some really unusual situations happen that uh, you know, are hard to believe. My, when I was riding my first night solo, I stopped the car coming off the canal bank. It was like 2.30 in the morning. 
And I said, oh, finally a line for my worksheet. Probably a couple of lovers and, you know, it'd be nothing to it. So they had a 59 Chevy and I had a Studebaker Lark. Anyway, uh, I got out of my car and I got about halfway up to their car when all of a sudden I hit a, like an invisible wall. I couldn't go any further. I thought, oh man, I'm losing my mind, you know. So I back up and I go to my car and I sit down. I'm going to grab the mic. I'm going to ask for a backup. And I think, wait a minute, they're going to think I'm a chicken. First car I stopped and a rookie. And, you know, so I put the mic down. And I go up there again. I said, this time I'm going to walk faster. And I got up that same spot and almost got knocked back on my butt. So I go back to my car and I'm just opening the car door when this arm came out of the window. And I heard this bullet whiz by my head, and they started shooting at me, you know. So I dive in my car, and the chase is on. We start at Sunny Slope at 7th Street in the canal, end up at 27th Avenue in Thomas. And I had five bullet holes in my car. I didn't shoot at all. I just was busy driving and using the mic, you know. <laughs> wow. <It's laughs> I kept hearing pebbles hit, what I thought were pebbles hitting the car, and it was bullets, you know. Oh, my God. It's amazing how many cops have a story that kind of mirrors that in terms of why they, they decided to duck at yeah. the right time and I not have no by idea. the grace of God. It was just something stopped me. Gut instinct. Yeah. It's real. No, it's real. Yeah. Intuition is real. Yeah. And we, we talked to a fellow cops. We all have a story that, yeah. man, yeah. If, if it hadn't done this or hadn't stopped, I'd be yeah. dead. Yeah. I had wow. a, a psychiatrist call me one time. He says, hey, could you test a patient of mine? And I said, why? And he said, well, I, testif- he, I testified in court. It's a murder case. And I testified in court that he didn't remember it. If he did it, he couldn't remember, remember anything about it. And I said, well, I'll test him if you give me the leeway to interrogate him. And he said, yeah, sure. So he testified the guy, the guy didn't remember anything. So anyway, during the interrogation, the guy said, it was a contract killing. He says, I dressed up like a telephone repairman. And... Uh, Got inside the guy, and he says, I, uh, I stabbed him with a knife, but then the blood was all over the place. It's so slippery, the knife slipped out of my hand, so I grabbed the letter opener and off his desk and finished him off with that. So anyway, he's telling him all this stuff. So I called the psychiatrist, and I says, well, here's what the guy told me. Dead silence on the phone. <laughs> and I says, I'll send you a report. And he says, well, finally he says, Okay, thanks. Well, I'll call you again sometime, but he never did. <laughs> <laughs> After he already testified in court. Uh, <laughs> great stories. Great stories. Thank you so much. <laughs> Cannot thank you enough, uh, Len, for coming in. And I had the great honor and privilege to work with your son, uh, uh, work for him uh, as lieutenant three times on the department. Great family of officers. Thank you for your service, Thank sir. you. Thank you, LT. I appreciate you, sir, so much. We'll, we'll be, be right, right back. back. More stories, inside guests, and true blue humor coming up on Batch Boys. We'll be back right after this. I remember the moment. moment. I'll never forget that moment. As long as I live. As long as I live. Several of us were working to rescue a family. The house collapsed on top of the cellar door and trapped them. We had to use Humvees and heavy machinery to move massive trees and debris. We got them out. We helped a lot of people out. It felt good to know I could really make a difference. Because I'm a citizen soldier in the National Guard. Be there the moment your community needs you. Learn more at NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Arizona National Guard. Aired by the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. Move over, AZ. Arizona's move over law requires you to move over or slow down when you drive past any vehicle pulled over with flashing lights. Remember, every vehicle, every time. Move over, AZ. Sponsored by ADOT in partnership with the Arizona Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Badge Boys with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Now, back to the Badge Boys. That was a great segment. Uh, both segments were incredible, but I just love sitting back with uh, uh, Lieutenant Retired Len Zing and hearing about his stories. Uh, I've had coffee with him so many times and, and when he started this adventure, and it's just such a pleasure to be with him. Kind of reminds me of being with you, Jason. It's just such a pleasure to be with you. Uh, yeah, today, you know, these shows every week, just, again, they get better and better. And in closing today, you know, we heard, we heard from two... Longtime police officers, old school police officers, and the stories are, uh, they're fun, they're exciting, they're sad, they're gross, they're scary, you kind of get everything. Uh, and uh, today, Darren is 
95 years ago today, the first Phoenix police officer ever to die in the line of duty, Officer Hayes Birch. He was shot and killed by a couple of guys he was trying to stop from siphoning gas at 8th Street and Jefferson, both of our old patrol zones. Uh, 1925, hard to imagine. But, you know, it's a great time to reflect on things that Vinny said, things that Lieutenant Zing said. And for anybody out there, officers especially, I, you know, I think it's important for us to know our heritage, know our history, and uh, to understand those that came before us. But no matter what job you have, what seat you're sitting in, somebody was there before you, and you need to honor them, and you need to leave that seat and that job better than you found it. God bless all of you. God bless Lieutenant Zing, Vinny, Hayes Birch, and Darren and Robin. Uh, we will see you guys next week. Batch Boys. Thanks for listening to Batch Boys. <laughs> Stories, insights, guests, and true blue humor with retired police sergeant Darren Birch and retired police officer Jason Schechterly. Batch Boys, heard weekly and worldwide on Star Worldwide Networks and all mobile devices. Badge Boys.